while people say, yeah, you know, the financial markets are getting developed, etc., actually what COVID has shown us is when things go wrong, the only thing that counts is what's in your hand at this moment. Right? So I think in a way, nothing has changed with the gold market. And that's something that probably is the biggest asset. The fact that it's always been the way it is and you can depend upon it. Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast featuring the icons and entrepreneurs of technology, commodities and finance, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we examine the questions, are we facing a crisis of information or a crisis of trust? And will building smarter markets be the antidote? This episode is brought to you in part by Abax Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology, and better tools for risk management. Welcome back to Commodities in Asia on Smarter Markets. I'm Dave Greeley, Chief Economist at Abex Technologies. Our guest today is Sunil Kashyap, Director at FinMet. We'll be discussing gold, nickel, and managing risk in a world where physical commodities markets are increasingly centered in Asia, while the commodities futures markets are in the United States and Europe. Hello, Sunil. Welcome to Smarter Markets. Hi. Nice to be here. Well, really glad to have you here. I've been looking forward to this conversation, to hearing and discussing some of your insights and experience from close to three decades in the Asian gold and precious metals industry. But you know, I wanted to start in a little bit of a different direction with you today, which is to talk with you about an important event in the base metals market. I wanted to ask you about the crisis in the LME nickel markets last year. Because I think it provides a window into understanding Asia's place in the metals markets and ways in which the commodities future markets have not yet adapted to the reality of the role that Asia now plays. So I was hoping you might start us off this morning by talking a little bit and sharing your perspective on the LME nickel crisis and how Asia was involved. Yeah, okay. So maybe I'll just give you the broad picture first and then we'll just dive in and see we will peel away what happened and we can understand what was going on under the surface. So essentially what happened uh, last year was that the LME nickel contract uh, saw a huge amount of volatility and over a very short period of time, the nickel futures prices started going up as much as 50 to 100% every day. And you had a situation where the market was chaotic, bid offer spreads were huge and Essentially, the LME had to step in and stop trading, had to review the trades that were done over the previous few hours, and then had to cancel some of the trades. So it was a huge market dislocation. And then when you peel back to see what actually was happening, you saw that on the buying side, there were several hedge funds, uh, several institution players who were buying nickel futures. And on the sell side, predominantly, there were some physical players, and there was one dominant Chinese producer, nickel producer, who was on the sell side. And the reason why the Chinese producer was actually selling is because he was sitting on physical stocks and he was trying to hedge his price risk and and selling the futures contract. The problem, of course, was that as the longs took more and more positions, his short position turned out to be more and more out of the money And uh, he had mark-to-market calls. And at one point, I think he was looking at a mark-to-market loss of close to $2 billion, which he could not fund. 
Uh, and so that's why they had to bust the trades and create some kind of settlement. So the situation really was that, yes, he had the underlying physical. So in a way, he was hedged. But you had a mismatch, firstly, in terms of timing, because the futures contracts get mark-to-market every day, and you need to meet mark-to-market calls. And on the other hand, even though he had the physical, it was in the wrong location, quote-unquote wrong, in China. It was in the wrong form, okay? And it was so far away that you couldn't deliver against the futures contract that was uh, in London. And so that this kind of basis risk, which is between the physical markets in Asia, where there are uh, producers or consumers uh, of physical metal who want to hedge themselves, and the futures market in the West, where these these consumers and producers hedge themselves, there is a disconnect between the two in terms of the delivery standards, the timings for delivery, the standards for delivery, etc. And that disconnect uh, is what we call basis risk. And that basis risk has been ballooning up over time as the volumes of trading by these physical players has grown as a result of the fact that Asia itself has grown bigger and bigger in terms of the commodities markets. And these issues of the the growing basis between the physical markets of Asia and the futures markets that are primarily in US and Europe, I mean, these are broader than the LME nickel market. And I imagine other commodity markets share similar vulnerabilities. What do you see creating some of the vulnerabilities that lead to the dislocations? And are those vulnerabilities in the gold and precious metals markets as well? Yeah, they are in the precious metals markets as well. And and I can look at those markets and give you a little bit more of a sense what's what's happening. Is that I think often what happens is the physical players in Asia, be it consumers or producers, they get comfortable in hedging their positions in the Western markets. And as long as the markets are orderly, Everything works out well. You can put on a position to hedge your physical, and then you can take it off when your uh, physical position is closed out. And so everything works well. But then over time, they end up increasing the size of their positions, not realizing that they could get into a short squeeze or some kind of a mark-to-market liquidity crunch. And that's when the problem occurs. And we've seen that even happening in the Western markets. I mean, last year or two years ago in the precious metals markets, there was a dislocation between the physical market in London and the futures market in comics in in New York. And that was because the physical markets in London worked to a different delivery standard than the futures markets in New York. And uh, of course, the, the differential was enhanced. The problem was enhanced because of COVID, because you couldn't change the form that gold was available in London into the form that was required in comics. And that created a huge market dislocation. So it can happen even in Western markets, between Western markets, because of logistical issues, which make it difficult to close arbitrage positions. But it's more the case between Asia and the West because of distance, because of the differential in delivery standards. Could you elaborate a little bit more on the the difference in specification between London and New York in gold? Yeah. So so the London uh, market, the standard delivery for a delivery in the London market for gold is 400 ounce bars with 99.5% purity plus. And the delivery standard in COMEX uh, in New York is 100 ounce bar, which is 995 plus. And the 100-ounce bars basically compares to the 400-ounce bars uh, is a different size, different standard. And also, in some cases, 
you may have a disconnect in terms of the refineries which are able to convert those 400 ounce bars into 100 ounce bars. So that differential of size and in some cases purity creates a situation where the refiners, in order to close the arbitrage, any kind of arbitrageur has to take the physical out of London, convert that into 100 ounce bars and deliver it to the futures contract in New York. And during COVID, that became impossible because most of the refineries were closed, flights had been cancelled, and that created the dislocation we talked about. Right. And, you know, you had mentioned earlier the idea of basis risk and the idea that in good times, the markets work well enough and the basis is, quote, small enough that it's manageable. But there's always those risks of serious dislocations, like we saw between London and New York in gold at the early days of the COVID pandemic and like help contribute to the short squeeze in nickel when the producer couldn't deliver against their hedges. I was curious, you know, if we take a step back, how do you think about understanding and managing basis risk? Because there certainly has to be a better way than hope we stay in normal market conditions. Yeah, I think I think it's a it's a big issue, and there's no one answer. You know, the, the obvious, most simple answer people can say is manage your positions in a way that you don't run up huge positions in the futures contracts that you can't meet margin calls. Basically, the problem happens because even though you may have the physical, the delivery period for the contract may be two months in the future, right? But when the contract, the futures contract prices move, you need to meet margin calls on a 24-hour basis or in, even intraday, right? So from an intraday or short-term basis, those mark-to-market calls have to be met by liquidity. You need to have money to meet those. So you may have a cash flow issue to meet those margin calls. And I think that's where people get tripped up because they don't have enough cash liquidity. They may have the physical, but that's going to be delivered two months from now, right? And it, you know you need to change form and move it and deliver it into the into the uh, depositories. But the immediacy of meeting mark-to-market calls is the one that people never think about. And so they run up huge positions, and then when the prices move up or down and they have a margin call, they don't have the liquidity to meet, meet that call. And that's what creates this problem. And I'm curious, you know, where are the banks in all of this? You know, I worked on in commodities at Goldman many years ago, and it was pretty much a, a normal part of the business that commercial players, participants, hedgers would do trades over the counter so that they weren't forced to make margin calls the way you would on an exchange. But, you know, you could post collateral, use your balance sheet strength to kind of protect the positions you had on your hedging positions. Are the banks not willing to extend that type of credit or participate in the over-the-counter markets in that way? Yeah, I, I think things have changed uh, in the last, certainly in the last six, five to six years because of banking regulation in Basel III. You know, with the, with the banking rules of Basel III, the whole way that commodities are reflected, physical commodities are reflected in the bank's balance sheets, the way that OTC derivatives are managed have gone through a, a, a huge change to the extent that now a lot of the banks are not allowed to give uh, limits. You know, they need to, if they are giving limits for uh, meeting uh, OTC mark-to-market calls, then the capital weighting is so high that it becomes unprofitable for them. So a lot of the banks are really pulling back from this whole OTC derivatives uh, business. And, and the regulators also want to push the derivatives more onto exchanges 
because they want more transparency. Because remember, the financial crisis when it took place was all driven by OTC derivatives, not in the commodities market, but in the credit markets and what have you. And so that's why uh, the regulators are very keen to penalize OTC derivatives. And that makes the banks a little bit more shy than they were in the past for offering huge limits to customers, especially mark-to-market limits. Yeah, it's interesting. It's often when the regulators try to solve one problem and reduce one form of risk, it creates another form of risk somewhere else. I'm curious, obviously, finding a better way to handle the mark-to-market for bona fide hedgers sounds like, in your view, would be a good way to help people deal with the basis risk better. Are there other ways that we can make our markets more resilient to this type of risk? Do we need better markets, better tools, better technology, better regulation? I think one of the ways, in, like we mentioned, uh, you know, the, the issue really is that OTC limits are not available. So one of the ways you could look at is, is creating pools of liquidity regionally, okay, mm. closer to where the physical players are. And maybe those pools of liquidity, uh, not maybe, have to be done through an exchange mechanism because that's what the regulators want. They want a transparent exchange with ridiculous prices. But if you do create those pools of liquidity through an exchange and have delivery standards which match the physical standards of that regional market, then what you do is you you bridge that gap. Now, it could be that then between that regional exchange and the larger Western exchange, you create arbitrageurs who then ensure that the prices are in order. But at least what you do is you diversify the risk across several players in that situation. Right? And so the importance of creating these regional pools of liquidity in regional exchanges with regional delivery standards and contract norms, I think, is, is very important. And it's something that has not been possible in the past, maybe because of technology. And, you know, we had a series of crises with the financial crisis and then COVID. And I think that's something that is definitely lacking at this moment, but it's a need of the, of the hour. Right. So when you think about a regional market for Asia, and maybe I'm maybe Asia is too broad. Maybe it has to be a smaller part of Asia, whether it's India, China, Southeast Asia. How would that differ? Do you think, in terms of specification, location from the gold markets that we're more accustomed to in the U.S. and Europe? Like, could you walk us through a little bit about the the physical commercial market in Asia and what aspects of that would need to be reflected? in a financial market, a regional pool of liquidity, as you put it. Right. So I think, I think you know, like I mentioned, let's look at gold. We mentioned that the delivery standard in New York is 100-ounce power. The delivery standard in London is uh, a 400-ounce power. In Asia, in most of Asia, the standard bar that is actually traded in the physical markets is a kilo bar. That's uh, 100 grams a uh, kilo bar, uh, which can have purity of 995 or f- typically four nines. And that's the standard delivery standard across Japan, China, most of Southeast Asia, even the Middle East, and India. India, the purity changes, but it basically is uh, a one kilobar. So the kilobar is a standard gold physical uh, standard that's that's traded between players. So that is the natural one. If you had to create an exchange, that is a natural standard that you need to look at for your contract, saying you know a kilobar is deliverable against this contract. Right, and is it? You know, when we look at the market, how divided is it? Would would one Asian market be a, a large pool of liquidity, or do you need more differentiation within Asia? 
Yeah. So I think Asia, you know, is 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 very diversified. You've got Japan and Korea on the one hand, which are quite developed, and Australia, of course, quite developed markets. And then you've got China and India, which are massive domestic markets, but with capital controls, they're basically locked out of the international markets. So it is a, a bit of a challenge. And you've got a lot of smaller countries like Thailand, Indonesia, etc., which are quite tiny in terms of the size of the financial markets. So it is a challenge because you've got all these diverse countries with different stages of capital controls and financial regulation. And so marrying that into a contract can be difficult. But I think given the fact that uh, Hong Kong and Singapore are quite developed financial markets, a lot of uh, institutional players have quite uh, a lot of knowledge base in terms of how financial markets work. These would be the natural locations you could look at to create such an exchange. And then you would have players from you know, right from Japan to Australia to China to India looking to these markets as being the sort of primary liquidity provider for their for their hedges. Right. And how has the gold market, the physical market, been developing in Asia over the past 10 years through all these changes in bank regulation and, and, and market structure? How has that been growing? Yeah, I mean, I think two things I would say. Uh, fortunately, uh, you know, both China and India have been growing and they've done, they've taken, made some changes to create local domestic exchanges where trading is quite active and it gives the local players an ability to hedge their positions uh, locally on those exchanges. But both those exchanges really function in local currency terms, uh, in RMB and Indian rupees, and both those currencies are not convertible at the capital account. So it doesn't allow foreign players to easily trade in these markets. So they remain largely local markets and the connectivity to international markets is quite tenuous. It's typically through physical product moving in and out of those uh, of those markets. So that's been a positive trend that at least you've created local pools, but then it doesn't allow foreigners to come in. But besides that, we haven't really been very successful in creating a regional international exchange where international players and regional players can come come together and get price discovery together. That hasn't happened so far. Yeah. What do you think the challenge to that has been? Has it been the capital controls or something else? No, I think it's just been, firstly, uh, like I said, you know, there were so many distractions of so many things happening. Mm. You know, people haven't really gone down to actually creating an exchange for that. Secondly, the cost, right? You know, in the absence of uh, technology, if you use the traditional exchange model, it can be very expensive to set up contracts and, and make them liquid. So I think technology has been a hindrance. And thirdly, you know, the, the precious metal markets have a huge amount of inertia. If you actually look at them, there's nothing new that has happened probably since the ETF in 2002. So it does take time to create innovation within these markets. And so that's, that's one of the hurdles to getting something like that going. Yeah, the, the innovation that there's a lot of work behind that. I was curious, where do you see like a, a need for innovation? You know, people often talk about use of gold as a, as a, a currency, you know, kind of its uh, original use. In, in a world where there are lots of capital controls, or do people use gold more as a common currency, or what is what is the demand for it in Asia? So I, I think if you look at India and China and even places like Thailand and Indonesia. Gold often is the only international asset that local players, retail players can can purchase, right? So it's the only asset where which is linked to the international markets and 
typically linked to the US dollar. So often what will happen is that in, in situations where the currency is weakening or there's a problem domestically, the investors would rush into physical gold because it creates a hedge against domestic uncertainty, uh, currency devaluation, etc. So gold does create that link in a situation where there's capital controls. But besides that, and that's been going on for years and decades, besides that, there's no real innovation that has taken place. And given your experience over the past you know, three decades, what innovation would you like to see take place? Obviously, more regional exchanges, Asian benchmarks. Is that the area? Or are there some other aspects where you're like, this would really help push the industry forward? Yeah, I think, I think the ability for a technology-driven exchange to build an infrastructure at low cost and then create technological connectivity to the bigger exchanges to provide liquidity into the regional exchange would be very useful because technology is something which allows anybody, whether they're in, in Japan or they're in Vietnam, to access a pool of liquidity in a, in a, in a, in a central location. And with, especially in the last five or 10 years, you know, pe- people's use of technology has grown so much. They're so comfortable now that they don't need to pick up the phone anymore. I mean, it's interesting that in these local markets now, the use of phone calls and you know, voice has reduced dramatically. Even at in the smaller markets like Vietnam or in Thailand, if you talk to most of the traders there, all the trades are done in click and, click and trade because people have adopted local technology for that. So I think people are comfortable now to look at a screen and trade. And so the time is right to use the technology to create something like that. And I'm curious, how do you, you know, th- there's often this symbiotic relationship between exchanges and the physical markets where the physical market has to be ready to support an exchange and have that level of liquidity and development and standardization. And then there's the ways in which the exchange helps then propel the physical market forward because it allows people to trade with transparency, to lay off risk, to manage the risk better. How do you see uh, the creation of a, a regional exchange for gold in Asia? How would that help propel the physical industry forward? Yeah, I think uh, if you ask the physical industry, do you need an exchange? The answer would be no, we're fine the way we are. So you have to <laughs> have a little bit of a leap of faith. It's like build it and they will come. So you'll have to do that. I think there's definitely an inherent need, but I don't think people can can say this is what we want because of the fact that a lot of them are quite traditional in the way they carry on their business. But if you talk to some of the most sophisticated players, the institutional players who deal in physical they for sure will tell you that, yes, we need to have something like that. Right. And how do you imagine the connectivity that you spoke of between an Asian regional pool of liquidity and the London market, the New York market, with so much of the physical trade being in Asia? Do you see it as, I guess I'm trying to understand which is the dog and which is the tail to use a a more American expression? Yeah, I think think the dog remains uh, uh, the Western markets because the pool of liquidity is so large. But, you know, if you create two exchanges, you'll get more institutional players who will just come in as pure arbitrageurs because they can understand the delivery standards of two exchanges They can, and they can try to use differentials between the two much better than the physical players, right? So you'll get, you know, very sophisticated arbitrageurs coming in and creating that connectivity between the larger exchange and the smaller exchange. And then you have regional players, you know, in the physical markets, et cetera, laying off their risk onto, 
onto that exchange and then arbitrageurs will take that risk and then lay it off with the bigger uh, exchanges. So that's how I see it. Right now, the, the only option is that the, f- the physical guys are going directly into Western exchanges and then often they're getting squeezed out. And so this will this will ensure that at least the risk gets mitigated locally for them and then bigger players can come in and just do basis trades between two exchanges. Those who can better handle that basis risk than a, a, a physical producer or buyer. Correct. Absolutely. So I was hoping maybe we could take a, a step back. Given your experience, I'd just love to hear a little bit about your outlook for the development of the gold and precious metals markets and industry in Asia. How much of this do you think will be driven by China, by India, or what nations, what regions do you think are going to are, are doing interesting things that we need to be aware of? I think there's a couple of things I would say. One is I think there's the overall sort of concern or uh, something that's top of mind for a lot of players in in Asia is is the responsible sourcing. The fact is that uh, there's a lot of not so good things happening in the gold market sometimes. And so the Asian uh, players, while they were smaller, you know, they didn't really care about any of those things. But as they've become big and, you know, by world standards, they're more recognizable, they are very concerned to ensure that they, they don't get into any reputational risk issues. So a lot of them are upgrading their standards, the KYC, AML policies to ensure that not only are they clean, because they were always okay, it's now a situation where they've got to be able to exhibit, show the world that, look, we are, and then so that people can verify that they are meeting the highest global standards. So that's one thing that, that I see across uh, the region happening with a lot of players. They want to distinguish themselves, saying we are world class in terms of compliance. Uh, the second exciting thing that's happening is is the setting up of a of a sort of an offshore exchange in India, uh, which will trade gold in kilobars against US dollars. Right now, it's a f- uh, spot physical exchange, but they're soon going to uh, offer futures contracts. So that'll be one of the first experiments of what we're talking about having a regional exchange trade in the U.S. dollars with a physical Asian product. Uh, so the exchange is up and running. The new contracts are being tested right now. And so by November or December, we should see them being launched. And I was curious, when you look outside of China and India, you know, you've spent a lot of time in the, the, the gold markets in Southeast Asia. How do they fit into to the, the Asian region as a whole in the world? Yeah, I mean, I think you know, both Hong Kong and Singapore are the major financial markets and they're the ones who link regional players to the international market so most of the bullion banks have offices either in singapore or in hong kong they have metal desks there those metal desks are trading london look london or trading comics against the physical in, in the local markets uh, and that's clearly where the development is taking place we are seeing more and more uh, international bullion banks setting up offices, predominantly in Singapore. And we do see that the Singapore government is keen to promote Singapore as a regional commodities hub and encourage more physical and hedging activity out of Singapore. And I wanted to ask one one last question of you before we go. She brought up the uh, the idea that people want to know the provenance. They want to know where the gold came from. That's something we're seeing across many of the commodities markets that people want to understand the supply chain. Was it sourced in a responsible way? When you look at that in the gold market, how do you see that developing? Is it about where the gold was mined and refined? 
or is it about whose hands it's passed through? Because it's kind of an interesting aspect when you have these almost the decommoditization of certain commodities where people want to want to be able to distinguish commodities based on where they came from or potentially who they came from. Yeah. No, I think it's all of the above. I mean, I think people want to show that along the supply chain, there have been no illegal activities associated with the management of that gold or the conversion of that gold uh, from mine to money, right? And I think that's the primary concern right now. Of course, in more developed markets, people want to look at also things like carbon footprint and those kind of situations. But I don't think that's a big concern in Asia right now. Right now, all they're trying to make, you know, make sure is that, look, you know, I'm selling this ounce of gold and I, I can tell you for sure that there has been no illegal activity connected to this gold from the time that it came out of the mine to the time that it's it's in the hands of consumer. Oh, wow. And when, when you look forward, how important do you think that's going to be in the future? Is that just going to become part of the part of the market? It's already very important. It's already very important. All the big players are spending a lot of money to ensure that they meet global standards because the downside is, is so much, right? I mean, you, you don't want to have anything that you know impacts your your reputation because as soon as that happens, the rest of the market just leaves you and, and uh, abandons you. And so that's something that that's everybody is very concerned about. So they, they make sure that they have they, they take all the precautions necessary that they don't inadvertently fall into something like this. And maybe maybe I lied before. I have one more question for you. Sure, sure. Sure. <laughs> then I'll let you go. You know, I think there's gold is one of those commodities whose um death has been called for many times over many decades, if not centuries, and yet it's still with us. So kind of when we come through you know, we've gone through a dollar world, we've gone through crypto, we've gone through all these other stores of value. You know, where do you see the future for gold in Asia and in the use that we put it to? Yeah, I, I, I think it's more of the same. I think I think the unique part of gold, there's three things that, that attracts people about gold. I think one is, of course, the ease of trading, a physical, you can buy physical anytime. You don't have to open a mutual fund account, a brokerage account anything. You just go down and buy physical gold. So just the ease of trading, especially, you know, whether you're in Vietnam, Indonesia, or, or Singapore, just go with your local currency, buy gold, right? So it's an asset which you can buy anytime, even 24 hours a day, right? So that's one thing that, that's always been there for so long. It was true hundreds of years ago. It's still true now, right? So that's one thing, I think. The second thing about gold that people understand is, is of course, the physicality that once you have it, you have, you know, it's not in a custodian account, it's not in a depository, it's, it's with you, right? And and more than that, there is no counterparty risk. It's not that somebody can take it away. If it's with you, it's with you. It's not as if suddenly it's going to disappear like a Lehman bond or something, right? <laughs> so, um, so that's the second part that is quite attractive to people. And the third thing, like I mentioned to you, is, is the linkage to the international markets, right? If you're in Cambodia, right? You can't buy a Microsoft share. You can't buy a US. You can hold physical US dollars. That's about it, right? But you can't buy a bond. You can't buy equity in US dollars. You can either buy physical US dollar notes or you buy gold. So that ability to, that access to an international commodity, okay, which is liquid anywhere in the world, is very important. 
So, and it's been the case before, and every year it gets more and more embedded because while people say, yeah, you know, the financial markets are getting developed, etc., actually what COVID has shown us is it's when things go wrong, the only thing that counts is what's in your hand at this moment, right? When you can't go to the bank, you can't go anywhere. You start thinking, this is what I have, right? So I think, I think in a way, nothing has changed with the gold markets, and that's something that probably is the biggest asset, the fact that it's... It's always been the way it is, and you can depend upon it. And it diversifies your risk, right? The other issue is when all the assets are moving all over the place, gold is steady. It may move 2 3 5%. You know, a 3% move in gold price is a huge thing, whereas a 3% move in bonds and stocks are, are usual nowadays within a day, right? So it is. It's a very stable, diversified asset which gives you protection. And that's something that's, I think, something that even the younger generation understands. Thanks again to Sunil Kashup, Director at FinMet. We hope you enjoyed the episode. Join us next week as we continue our series, Commodities in Asia, with Lee Howell, Executive Director at the Valars Institute. We'll be discussing the shifting tides in international affairs and the new geopolitical realities that are being created by the energy transition and Asia's place in it. We hope you'll join us. This episode was brought to you in part by ABAX Exchange, Market participants need the confidence and ability to secure funding for resource development, production, processing, refining, and transportation of commodities across the globe, with markets for LNG, battery metals, and emissions offsets at the core of the transition to sustainability. ABAX Exchange is building solutions to manage risk in these rapidly changing global markets facilitating futures and options contracts designed to offer market participants clear price signals and hedging capabilities in those markets essential to our sustainable energy transition. ABAX Exchange, bringing you better benchmarks, better technology and better tools for risk management. That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets by ABAX. For episode transcripts and additional episode information, including research, editorial, and video content, please visit smartermarkets.media. Please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice. Always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or producer. Smarter Markets, its hosts, guests, employees and producer, ABAX Technologies, shall not be held liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on informational viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets. Thank you for listening and please join us again next week.